following message is presented by Community Gospel Church in Bremen, Indiana. It is our great privilege to share this ministry with you. We in no way intend for this to be a replacement for the local church. It is our prayer that this would serve as a resource to help make Jesus Christ known in our congregation and other congregations gathering across the world. For more information about Community Gospel Church, visit www.communitygospelchurch.com. If you would, open your Bibles uh, or electronic device that has a Bible on it or one of the Bibles that's in the front um, of you in the pew, I I want to direct your attention to one of the hardest books ever to find, and that is the book of Titus. For whatever reason, because I know so many of us use the thumb-flipping method where we grab our Bible and we just thumb, right, until we find that book, you will not find Titus that way. I've tried, um, and it doesn't work. So... uh, In the New Testament, you have the four Gospels. The New Testament is on the right-hand side of the Bible. Uh, Testament just means covenant or promise from God. And so in the Old uh, Testament, there's an old promise from God, and then that is fulfilled in the New Testament from God. So you have four uh, books called Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those are the Gospels of Jesus' life. The book of Acts is how God's Spirit dwells among his people. And then uh, you have all these letters to the church. You have all these letters to um, the churches on how they are to conduct themselves and, and live, um, knowing the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he came, died, and rose again. And so if you hit the big book of Hebrews, you need to go back. If you hit uh, the books of First and Second Timothy, you're almost there, um, and it's because it's right after First and Second Timothy. <clears throat> so as you're opening to Titus, um, have you ever heard the phrase, uh, caught between a rock and a hard place? I heard that this week. Somebody, somebody said to me, I'm caught between a rock and a hard place. And I wanted to look at them. I'm like, no, you're not. You're standing right in front of me. Um, but I haven't heard that in a long time. Actually, people, my dad uses that uh, a lot. And so um, essentially, it, it's not a good thing, right? It essentially means that you're in a difficult situation and you have to choose between two equally unpleasant courses of action. That's the actual definition, by the way. I looked it up. Um, For example, if he accepted the offer, he would have to work long hours with low pay, and if he didn't, he would lose his livelihood. He's caught between rock and hard place, right? Or you could say that she makes the deal, she's going to make a monetary loss, but if she doesn't make the deal, she's going to lose her reputation. She's caught. We've been rocking a hard place. It's fun to finish my sentences. If you don't believe that, ask Bethany. She'll tell you. <clears throat> I do love you. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's fine. Like, just try it. Pastor Jordan's just trying, okay? <clears throat> He's trying. Anyway, um, so Titus, okay? What, what does that have to do with, with Titus? And Jeff, I'm just going to let you man this, all right? Because you're good at it and it helps you pay attention to what I'm going to say anyway. So we're good. <laughs> all right. Um, in the first century, there was a man, and his name was Titus. And Titus is enlisted by another man named Paul. And Paul is an apostle of Jesus. He's sent by Jesus to do specific things. And so Titus is uh, one of, kind of a follower of, of Paul. And he lives between a rock and a hard place because he is in this place called Crete. So in Crete, um, it's an island, and the people that live on Crete, ready for this, are called Cretans. 
which is amazing, right? Um, and so the Cretans are known all throughout like this world that we're about to enter as lazy people and dishonest in pretty much everything that they participate in. The Cretans have this really long history of like wicked living. They are said to possess morals of a stray dog. Now, it was really funny because Freya, who is back here, um, who plays um, the recorder, uh, which is totally just for our church, by the way. Like, I've never been to a church where somebody plays the recorder. Amen? Um, Her dad was here, and um, they're originally from Germany. Or not originally from Germany. Like, they lived in Germany. And uh, we were there a couple weeks ago talking to her dad, and he was like, oh, yeah, Christians are the worst. And I just was, like, soaking it in. I was like, this is amazing. Like, this is real. And it's still to this day true. Like, Christians are the worst. And if you're a Christian listening in, I'm sorry, but that's what your people are all about. So it just is what it is. But there was a poet way back in the day, and he said that Christians are liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. In Greek literature, to Christianize something meant that you just straight up lied about it. So I used it the other day with my kids. I was like, you just Christianized that thing. Crete was a moral and spiritual wreck. Now, the crazy thing is, if you bridge the gap from, like, New Testament Crete, right, to today, we would all be in the same boat. We would all say that, like, America is like a wreck morally, right? It's just declining and things are not good. And so here, what happens is, Paul's like, hey, instead of, like, running from Crete, let's plant a church there. Now, Paul's my type of pastor because when he plants a church, he's like, I'm not going to stay here, right? I'm going to put somebody else to organize and run it. And here comes Titus, stuck between a rock and a hard place. So Paul has a conversation with Titus, and he's like, Titus, would you like to live in Crete? And he's like, no. And he's like, too bad. God told me. <laughs> and so Titus, is, is, he has this responsibility from Paul, and he is going to come in, and he's going to expose some errors, right, that the people are doing in their lives. He's going to proclaim God's truth, but he's not just going to proclaim it with his words. He's going to proclaim it with actions as well. And as he starts to proclaim God's words, he is going to model Christ in pretty much everything. And God is going to be gracious and he's going to work in Titus's work. And so we would think that Titus is stuck between a rock and a hard place, but with the Lord, you're never caught between two unequally unpleasant situations. You always have Christ, and with Christ, you cannot fail. And so Titus takes the job. He's like, all right, let's live in this sin-saturated society. Let's put God's truth in the middle of this sin-saturated society, and let's see just how much it will work. It was a test of faith. And so the sin-saturated society then, and the one that we live in now, shows us just how great God is. So let's like put God in this place and watch him move. And so this is gonna be extremely uncomfortable. I'm just gonna like put that out there right now. This book is, is really hard. There's a lot of things in here that make you look at yourself and go, man, I'm not living that way and I need to reconform to the image of Christ. And so <clears throat> the main idea here is, is, especially in these first couple of verses, is these two servants, right, Paul and Titus. And we can model them and then also, uh, it lays a good foundation for the rest of the text. So let's look at verse 1, Titus chapter 1, verse 1. <clears throat> Paul, there's our author, writing a letter as a servant of God and as an apostle of Jesus Christ, writes to Titus for the sake of the faith. He writes um, to God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hopes of eternal life, which God 
who never lies, promised before the ages began. And at the proper time, he manifested in his word through the preaching which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior, right to Titus, verse 4, my true child in a common faith. Grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Paul's words, Peter says, are hard to understand. Amen? Okay, so let's see if we can understand Paul's words. So let's start in uh, verse 1 with the first servant that we see here, a tale of two servants. Number one, his name is Paul. You can circle that. He's our author. This is a good reminder for us who have been in the church a long time. It is a good thing to know for those who are new to the church who Paul is. Paul has two names. Paul is his Greek name, but his Hebrew name is Saul. Now, some people believe that Paul dumped Saul and um, claimed simply Paul when he came to know the Lord, and that's not true. He used them interchangeably depending on who he was talking to. And as Paul uses his name interchangeably, he does it so the people who are far from God will come to a relationship with God. Paul, or Saul, is from the tribe of Benjamin in the Old Testament, for those of you who know what that means. And he is raised in Tarsus in a good, God-fearing Jerusalem home with godly parents. And as he is raised in this home, he starts to understand all these Old Testament truths. And his parents look at him and say, you're you're kind of a special kid. You pick up on things really fast. And so he gets a special tutor. um, And essentially this guy comes in and he gives him all of his knowledge. And Paul, as a successful young student, memorizes pretty much the entire Old Testament text. And he rises to the ranks and he becomes one of the greatest Pharisees. So he knows the law really, really well. And because he knows the law well, this group of people called Christians are starting to rise up and they're calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and they're being saved. And Paul, like a good Jew, especially a good Pharisee, says, this isn't right, so let's kill him. Because it's blasphemous for these Christians to say there is this God and his name is Jesus. And so Paul just goes on a rampage, and he just starts like, like I mean, you, you name it, Paul is adamantly opposed to Christianity. And sometimes when you're opposed to something, the person who is leading the opposition comes and talks to you face to face, and that's what happens with Jesus. So he shows up, and he talks to Paul, and he says, hey, Paul, um, I'm the risen Christ. Why are you persecuting me? And Paul's like struck to the core because he realizes this is God in human flesh, And Paul comes to know the Lord on the road to Damascus. And as he sees Jesus, Jesus commissions him, and he sends him physically to do specific things. Go to the Jew, and then to the Gentile, primarily to the Gentiles is what Paul's work would be done. And he says, I want you to share the gospel, and I want you to share your faith. I want you to share what happened with you on the road to Damascus, and how you once were lost, but now you're found. And I want you to share the good things that God is doing in your life. So Paul's life is radically changed, and we realize in Acts chapter 9, verse 15, Paul uh, starts this missionary work of planting churches. In Acts 9, 15, you don't have to go there, but it says, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. Now, God didn't make a mistake in calling Paul, and he doesn't make a mistake in the fact that Paul pens one-third of the New Testament. Because Paul, being a good Pharisee who knows the Old Testament so well, puts Jesus for all of us in the place of the Old Testament and says, yes, he really, truly is the Messiah. 
So not only was he a good student, but he also has the opportunity to take Jesus and say, he is really truly the risen Christ, and he really does save us from our sins. And if you reject that, you're not in a good place because the judgment of God will be upon you. So notice here in the text, Paul writes as a servant, and the word there is bondservant. We'll get to there later um, in sermons down the road. He writes as a servant, pointing people back to Jesus. Notice Paul never writes for his own popularity. He writes solely so that people who are far from God would come to know God and live accordingly. Um, He's devoted to Christ. And so as an Old Testament scholar, he says, I am a servant. Look at verse 1 of God. Now, the word there is servant of Yahweh, which is the same wording for those of you who remember, we just got done with Exodus. It's the same words that are used of Moses and the other prophets, meaning that these words that I'm communicating to you carry authority. And he writes, and go ahead, with uh, two main concerns. Number one, second part of verse one. Now, the words that Paul is going to give to Timothy are just as much for Timothy and the believers who are in Crete as they are for us today. Remember, the Bible goes from that generation to our generation, and he writes for the sake of the faith of God's elect. Paul writes first for the sake of or purpose of the faith or to build up believers. If you're not a a believer in Jesus Christ and we're studying this book, it's not going to make a whole lot of sense to you because you don't have the illumination of the Holy Spirit within you. So if you're gathered here today and you're like, I don't really know who Jesus is or what Jesus is all about, there's a little white book. You pick that up. You read the gospel. You confess your sins. Believe upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Receive his spirit who teaches, guides, and convicts. You need that, all right? That's good. You're not left to your own. The spirit comes in and gives us the ability to understand things that we don't understand in our own human state. Now, he writes for the sake of God's elect. And everybody starts praying for the pastor when that comes up, right? What does the word elect mean? Elect of God are those whom God predestined to salvation. They're called elect because the word indicates the concept of choosing. God chose those who will be saved. These are called the elect of God. They live in a space where humanity hates this, but our ways are not like God's ways. Our thoughts are not like God's thoughts. How does God elect but also choose? He just does. He's God. The question on the table is not why does God choose, or or not uh, does God choose, but why would God choose any of us? We're all sinners. Alistair Begg says, we look at this passage of scripture and we think to ourselves, I don't like that God chooses instead of, I can't believe that God would choose any of us as we're fallen sinners. Think of it like this. It's like the process of separating scrap metal. Salvage yards use these giant electromagnets to lift and sort scrap metal. When the magnet is turned on, there's a magnetic force that draws all the metal containing iron, but it has no effect on other metals like aluminum or brass or copper or things like that. In a similar way, one commentator says, God's elect will irresistibly draw to him those he's predestined to love and forgive, but have no effect on those he has not. Paul says it like this because he's our author. And in Romans chapter 8, verse 33, he says, Who dares accuse whom God has chosen for his own? Now, if you're not a believer, you hate the process of election. If you are a believer, you love it. Because thank God that he chose me. 
And thank God that we also have a choice. So don't get it twisted. Well, God calls, man also chooses. They live in the same space. So God's elect must respond or choose God's call through the gospel of Christ. And there is a divine balance between godly, in, uh, uh, an godly intuitive nature and a human response. Although that concept is surrounded by mystery, one commentator says, biblical teaching on election is for believers and it is intended as a practical truth that will help assure your faithful struggle and salvation is secure. If anything, for us who are gathered here today, looking at the believers who are gathered in Crete, to those of us today who are here, and we see the doctrine of election, it helps us to be assured that God is with us, he is not for us, and he has assured our salvation, he has made it secure, and no matter what society we find ourselves in and how much sin is saturated in that society, our call is to be faithful and just, knowing that God is working for the good of those who love him. So for the sake of the faith of God's elect, the purpose to build up your faith, Paul writes to Titus, first of all, with a second concern, for the knowledge of the truth. Paul wants believers to grow or mature in the knowledge of the truth. Now, if you have kids, right, this makes sense. Because how many of us have kids and we're like, I wish you would just stay young all the time? Grandma and grandpa say that, okay? Mom and dad don't. We're like, when do you graduate again? right? So Paul's not a grandparent here. He's a parent, and he wants believers to mature in the knowledge of the truth. Grow up. Have you ever looked at somebody and wanted to say that, right? You're acting like a child. Grow up. How do believers grow in the knowledge of God? Well, Paul's going to say it over and over again. It is by experience. How many times have you been in a situation or circumstance and you've told yourself, I wish I could just get out of this? We don't go over things. We don't go under things. We go through them. And we go through them by experience so that we can grow in our knowledge of what God has given to us. In other words, to truly know the truth, the gospel, is to first accept it as a reality, but then to live it out. So what Paul is saying to Timothy is he's saying there's believers in your society that are not living out the truth. Sound familiar? There are some people who are present in your day and age that are not putting godliness into all things. And Paul is saying that as believers, biblical truth is never isolated from morality. In other words, your salvation is not just an intellectual exercise. If you came to know God, right, through faith in Christ, and it just stayed in your head, you're missing all of the great things that God has for you. Because when we put the great things that God has given us in our mind, in our everyday life, we grow in our faith. If one really knows the truth, they'll express it in their everyday life. Paul's saying we cannot simply just know intellectually the truth. We have to live out that truth. This is how one, as he says, Look at the third part of verse 1, accords with godliness. Richard Baxter, who's a Reformed pastor, he says it like this. He says, take heed, church, lest lest your example, your lifestyle, contradict your doctrine, what you say. You do that? Do you live in such a way that what you say is void? 
lest you unsay with your lives what you say with your tongues and be the greatest hindrances of the success of your own labors. One proud, surly, lordly word, one needless contention, one covetous action may cut the throat of many of a sermon and blast the fruit of all that you have been doing. Let your lives condemn sin and persuade men to their duty to love the Lord with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. What if, this is a hard question to ask, because I think Paul asked it and I think Titus asked it. What if my life directly contradicts the gospel that I've received with my mind? You have to ask that question. Spurgeon said it like this. He said, perpetual godliness is, or periodical godliness is perpetual hypocrisy. Ouch. So in other words, I cannot compartmentalize my faith. Jesus is not just for Sunday. Jesus is for Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday. Jesus is for all of my life. I love J.C. Ryle. He's like my favorite. So he says, a true believer must always be known by his fruits. And those fruits must be plainly manifested and unmistakably in all relations of life. In other words, what J.C. Ryle is saying is, if there's no fruit in your life, application to the knowledge that you have in your head, then there's no grace in your life. And if there's no grace in your life, then you really haven't received God as Savior. And I think there's multiple people who are sitting in the pews all around churches today who think they have a relationship with God but are so far off because they have not put into practice what they know to be true. So Paul gives believers who have faith and knowledge, those of us uh, here today as well as in Crete, and he says, listen, 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 this is what I want you to do. Verse two, Titus, as well as the congregation that is uh, entrusted to your care, I want to give you two kind of hopes here. Number one, I want you to rest on the hope of eternal life. Always think about what is to come in the future. We just celebrated my uh, daughter's, uh, Gianna's 10th birthday. We asked her, we said, what do you want for your birthday? And she says, I just want to go to a hotel and swim. Check, right? Like, easy. For the past two weeks, all I heard about was when we get to go to the hotel and when we get to swim. And I'm like, after you clean your room, right? I mean, the list of chores that I got her to do, like, before we got there was awesome, right? I was like, we should just keep postponing this until, like, until, like, a long time break down their line, right? And every day, it was like, here. And then it got to the day where we get to go to the hotel, right? And she never talks on the way to school, ever, never talks. That day, I'm like, what is going on? Oh, we're going to the hotel tonight, right? She could not unfocus of what was to come. And I started thinking about it in regards to Titus 1, 2. Is that my life as a believer? Paul writes, for the believers who live by faith and knowledge, you must live with this view of eternity. I think so much about today, right? Like, what am I gonna do today and then tomorrow and then the next day and the next day, but I forget about my eternity with Christ. Second Timothy, Paul's letter to Timothy, Pastor Timothy says, for God saved us and called us to live a holy life because hope, absolute certainty of our future good, of what is to come in the future. You should live in light of eternity. The psalmist says it like this, Psalmist chapter 42. Why are you in despair, O my soul? I love that the psalmist talks to himself. That gives us great hope, correct? Right? He's not the only person that talks to himself. Why are you in despair, O my soul? Why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, and that word hope in God, he's pointing to the future of his eternal resting place with the physical presence of God. 
for I shall gain praise him for the help of his presence. So oftentimes we pray for the presence of God to be here. And if you're a believer, God's presence dwells within you. So the prayer should be for the awareness of the presence of God. Paul writes Titus to give hope of the eternal life. He says, Titus, whenever life gets tough, I want you to pause and think about where your home really is. Titus, whenever you see sin manifesting in your life, I want you to be encouraged that we as believers inherit the kingdom of God because of our salvation through faith in Christ. We are enabled to renew our hearts and our minds. We have right thinking, which leads to right action, which in turn helps us to endure whatever suffering we may experience. So look at Paul says, number two, trust Rest on the hope of eternal life and then trust the Lord who never lies and keeps his promise. Somebody needs to hear that this morning. That God never lies and always keeps his promises. Paul writes because our hope was promised to the elect from eternity past by God who cannot default on his word. Can we pause there for a second? God can never default on his word. It always proves true whether you like it or not. And so here he says, These words reach their full understanding because of what we know now, right? Notice in verse 3, Paul referred to God as Savior, whose eternal plan was to salvage a people for himself. Rather than liberate social structures or institutions, God's eternal plan was to salvage a people for himself. In other words, politics will crumble. Kingdoms will crumble. Earthly kingdoms will crumble. Things of this world will fall But if the Lord dwells within me, his presence always populates my life, which means let the world fall because the word stands secure. This is the primary focus of Paul's letter, okay? Samuel reminded King Saul in 1 Samuel 15, 29, the glory of Israel never lies. Our living God, the essence of all truth. Jesus himself said, I am the truth in John 14. I am faithful I am the one, Revelation 19, who gives the Holy Spirit, who proceeds from the Father. God never lies, but whatever the devil speaks, John chapter 8, is a lie. For he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of all lies. In other words, you can trust his word that was promised long ago. A believer's future is as bright as the promises of God. Okay, so verse 4. I, Paul, right, powerful Uh, start of the letter, write to Titus. Circle the word Titus here. Titus is an early church leader, faithful, trusted companion of Paul. Let me read a couple things to you. Galatians chapter two, verse three said, Titus was a Gentile who was led to faith in Christ by Paul. Paul calls him my true child in a common faith. In other words, if you want to paraphrase that, he's my best friend. I love that. Or one of my best friends, because Paul had a lot of best friends. And he writes to this Titus guy. Titus goes, okay, with Paul and Barnabas, for those of you who know your Bible, from Antioch to Jerusalem. He is, in Acts 15, the other believer. Titus is a perfect example of somebody who is born again as a Gentile and obediently advances the gospel by serving the church. You can see it in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. So Titus and Paul travel to the island of Crete, okay, where Titus continues to strengthen the work, doing administrative tasks, 
maintaining sound doctrine, and as we see in five, straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town. The last mention of Titus is in the Bible is when he's with Paul during his final Roman imprisonment from Rome. He goes out to evangelize in modern-day Yugoslavia. So what, Pastor Jordan? Titus, it's just between me and you, I think is a fantastic model to follow. If you are looking at somebody in the text that you're like, I want to be like this guy, this is it. He's a Gentile like us. He's effective in opposing the heresy of these people called the Judaizers. In other words, Paul is, or Titus is not afraid to open his mouth and tell people that they're wrong when it comes to bad doctrine. And he does it in a loving way. He doesn't always do it harshly. But there were these guys who believed in works-based salvation. There are people in America that believe in a works-based salvation, and that's not true. You cannot do anything to get to God. God had to come to you. So Paul and the other believers here, okay, we realize that Titus has a couple things going on for him, and let's pray these things as a church. Number one, Titus knows God's word like the back of his hand. Do you? He knows what it says. Number two, he faithfully served in application dedicated to help the cause of Christ. Paul and the other believers would say that Titus is so selfless. He is trustworthy. He is dependable. He handles difficult situations with mercy and grace. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 16 says, Titus had a God-given love for the Corinthian believers even though they were saturated with sin and he boldly proclaimed the truth to them with much enthusiasm. He was excited about it. You guys are so twisted. Let me tell you how to fix that. So the goal here as we study Titus is that we have the same passion for the Lord like Titus. And if we don't have it, we pray for it. Every believer would do well to model what Titus is about to command here to us in the next coming weeks. Titus is committed to biblical truth. Go to the next slide, Jeff. He has a hunger to spread the gospel and he has an enthusiastic love for the church. Church, is that you? I've wrestled with this for weeks as I've studied this passage of scripture. This is a threefold prayer of Titus that goes from Crete and the believers at Crete all the way to us today. I'd ask just openly, can you answer those questions? Number one, do I have a commitment to the biblical truth? Not do I have a commitment to knowing what's on social media, knowing what's on the news, knowing what my friends' opinions are, knowing what people think about me. No, am I committed to biblical truth? Number two, am I hungry to share that truth with the rest of the world in a loving, God-honoring way? And number three, am I enthusiastic about it? Like, am I excited about it? Right? Like, do I get really excited about it? Somebody uh, came on Easter last week, and they, they came up to me, and they're like, your church is really excited. It's like, people like to be here. And I said, well, I hope so. I hope they like to be here. They're, like, really excited to be here, though. And I was like, yeah. Like, uh, yeah, absolutely. Like, praise the Lord. Right? They're enthusiastic about being there. And look at the very last part. In verse 4, very last part, Paul says, grace and peace he says it in almost all of his letters, and we have such a capacity to just like plow through this. We're like, ah, oh, it's the end, right? Like this is the end of the, the beginning. But notice Paul points Titus as well as the entire Cretan believer population back to grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all of their sins. Paul 
gives a greeting here in Greek, which is grace, and Jewish, which is peace. And the word grace there, if you want to circle that, is the word charis. And it reminds the readers who are about to read this letter of God's kindness. These people, follow me, church, are saturated with sin. And Paul doesn't lay the hammer down. He gives them grace. He says God's grace is greater than all of your sin. It's an unbelievable gift of forgiveness and eternal life. And to obtain God's grace requires faith because you're guilty under the law. Grace, he says, cannot be earned by works. It is free. You did not deserve it. When you are in a state where you are emotionally exhausted and you feel like you are just at your lowest point in life and that you have all of these stories that have just come into your ears from people and places that are not of God, you look at the grace of God and you realize that you didn't discover God's grace. It relentlessly pursued you at all times. The pursuit of grace is amazing. That God in his grace always gives it in abundance. Now here's how that plays out in our everyday life. I look at other people all the time and I think, I'm not giving them grace. And God in his grace has illuminated in my mind that Jordan, I've given you grace. So you give them grace. So what Paul's saying to Titus is, he's like, be patient with these people. They're in process. Give them the truth. Yeah, they need it, right? But be patient with them and understand that there's grace to be given. And then he says, the more you give grace, the word peace comes in. And that's the word Irene and grace and, and, and grace and peace really come together here. Because Christ offered peace to the disciples who lived out their faith in an evil, sin-saturated world. So in other words, grace summarizes God's gift, but peace recaps the personal results of that gift. Peace is felt grace, quiet confidence, and joy in the unlimited possibilities of Christ. He's saying, listen, Paul, tell your parishioners, tell your people, no, you did not. He says, tell your people exactly what is possible in Christ. Paul wastes no time, he gets to the point, if Titus and all of the believers gathered there and here today rest on the hope of eternal life, Trust in the Lord who never lies. The promises of God will be seen both now and for eternity. We have to live in the assurance of God. You do not live between a rock and a hard place, church. You do not live between a rock and a hard place. When you have faith in God through Christ Jesus, our Savior, you are solidified, grounded, secure, in all of life's difficult situations, because to choose Christ means we reject the world. And when we do that, the peace and grace of God comes in abundance. Why does, why does Paul say that? He says, because we choose Christ. To live is Christ. Just what Bethany's saying. This is a foundation for the rest of our study. I want to keep going, but we got to wait a week, so we'll do that. All right, let me pray for you. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, I, I look at Paul's life and then I look at Titus's life and uh, I think we're all here and we're in this boat where we're, we're looking at um, just our lives and we're evaluating like where we're at and I'm just reminded of, of how reckless Paul lived just in regards to the, the, the damage that was done on the church and God, I'm reminded that and I pray that you would impress this truth on, on your church right now.
because I think so many of us are in this boat. Paul thought he had it right. And, and I confess to you, there are times where I think I have it right. And the problem with that is, there's the word I. And, and God, I want you to get it right. I want you to get it right in my heart, and I want you to get it right in the church's heart. And so oftentimes we're focused on like our own stuff, and, and we're, we're going our, our own direction, and we're going our own way. And right now in our, our busyness, Lord, we have to pause and, and kind of reject that, renounce busyness as godliness. And we have to focus on, on the truth that you saved us and secured us, that you chose us, even though that's hard to kind of wrap our minds around. You redeemed us. And when we rest in the promises that you've given us in your word, there's grace and there's peace in this sin-saturated society. So Lord, I pray uh, today that you would Help us to be faithful to you. I pray, God, specifically in regards to the three questions that were presented here based off of Titus 1-4, that you would help us, Lord, to know your word as we study it in the upcoming weeks, that we would be dedicated to help the cause of Christ by living out that truth in everything that we think, say, and do, and that we would be so passionate about it that we would have an enthusiastic love for it even when the world rejects it. And that we'd be like Titus. In the sin-saturated society, we continue to carry on by boldly proclaiming your word. I pray, God, that you would just find fruit in the next couple of weeks here. That we would be able to really live those truths out as we go from this place. And we do what you've commanded us to do. It's in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Community Gospel Church podcast. If you would like to support this ministry financially, simply log on to communitygospelchurch.com and click the Contribute tab.